Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Listeners, welcome back to On the Side with Jackie London. And I gotta say, guys, I'm thinking about renaming this show The Sibling Road Show because last week we had on my sister. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, definitely go check it out. And this week, we've got the brothers K. Chef Adam K and Jeremy K are co founders of the Spare Food Company, which is at the forefront of a movement in the food industry called upcycling. Essentially, Chef Adam Kay is the former culinary director at Blue Hill at Stone Barns, and Jeremy Kay is a former business executive. He was at Patagonia and at Nike. And Spare Food is really on a mission to fix some of the challenges or some of the larger issues within our current food system to find more ways to use more of what we're already growing and producing by taking overlooked and unused and underused ingredients and making them into delicious, nutritious foods and beverages that are better for all of us. They're nutritious foods and better for the planet. They are using regenerative practices that really maximize the resources that we currently have to do more with more. I just love that message right now. I just think a lot of us are kind of struggling with the whole grocery prices through the roof thing. And I feel like I learned so much about maximizing the foods that we already have and about what we still need to do to kind of make sure that we're really doing this optimization, maximization, using the resources that are available to us on a, on a larger scale. So I really learned so much. I found these two just so fascinating. I think you're going to love this episode and I would love to hear from you. So please let me know what you think by leaving a review. Just say hi. Let me know how you are, how you're feeling, what you want to hear more about if you have any questions that you want answered on an upcoming episode. And, you know, I mean, why not just throw in a little five-star rating? Five-star rating and review right there. Just very easy, quick and easy. And you will get a virtual hug from me because I appreciate you, listeners. All right, so because I appreciate you, I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to let Adam and Jeremy do the talking, the Spare Food Company. You, if you want to learn more, you can check out sparefood.com and follow them on Instagram and Facebook. And I'm going to link these in the notes. Enjoy today's episode with Chef Adam Kay and Jeremy Kay, co-founders of the Spare Food Company. But first, let's get to a quick listener question. Okay, today's question is so perfectly timely. Jackie, I'm going back to work three days a week next week, and I'm wondering if you have any tips for staying healthy at the office. All right. So 
I have talked about this a lot in the past and in dressing on the side, and there's lots of considerations. There's lots of new considerations that we have in our current 2022 existence. But I think that there's a couple things that will help kind of get you back to feeling a little bit more normal being in a new setting. So a little bit more comfortable with the transitional nature of things, which I think is really scary and really hard for so many of us. And I totally absolutely hear that. So a few things to just think about and kind of keep top of mind as you go. And I would say stay in touch with how you're physically, emotionally, psychologically feeling as you, you know, jump into this new experience of a sort of three day a week hybrid work from home, work from the office. We're all in different places with this right now. So I think a little self-compassion is above all else going to go a really long way right now. All right. So the first thing I want you to consider is eating consistently. And I say that because one thing that many of us may not have missed or may have missed, depending on where you're coming from, I don't know, Rebecca, maybe you love the, you know, munchkin buffet platter that is just waiting for you in an office conference room. But I I talk about eating and drinking consistently because I want you to practice more intentionality when it comes to what you're choosing to eat, right? Like what is your choice to have? Knowing that that absolutely anything fits within an overall pattern of healthful eating. It's just a question of you making those choices about when it's going to work for you versus when it's going to make you feel exhausted, tired, like you're ready to just catch the subway home, like you are ready to get airlifted by, you know, a helicopter because you simply cannot move from your desk because you just fell asleep and it's your first day back at the office and it's a bad look, Bob. I know. I get that. Okay. So I just think that the intentionality is a lot easier to put into practice from a biochemical perspective when you're eating and drinking consistently. So keep that in mind so that we can set you up for a more intentional back to work experience. The other kind of thing that I want you to keep in mind is that food pushers are super real right? I mean, like that's another thing that brings the intentionality right back in, but in a a subtle, different type of way. Food pushers are everywhere. They may be in your home, but they may also be at your office vending machine, or they may be bringing in brownies to celebrate the first day back at work. Again, totally your choice, whether or not you want to eat those brownies, whether you're going to get, you know, something and everything from the vending machine. Although beware, because, you know, it might be from 2019. So that would be upsetting and disturbing for your GI tract and overall immunity. But I digress. The point being that to practice real intentionality means being aware of food pushers and the ways that they come in and out of your life. And often they can be found at the office. Let's just be honest. They bring in that brownie tray and you're like, oh, I got to take one. She baked them, Susan. She stayed up all night. And now I feel like I've got to have four, right? Like we want this to be your choice. So consider that as you return to work. The last thing I want to say is I want to talk about Splash Mountain Syndrome. I coined this term, Splash Mountain Syndrome, when I wrote Dressing on the Side because just a little nod to Disney, although no, I'm not a Disney adult. But no judgment here, but I'm, I'm personally not one. Maybe a little, maybe I'm judging a little. All right, Splash Mountain Syndrome refers to that roller coaster at Disney World, which is, you know, like that massive drop and it's super scary. And I, honestly, I can't even really speak more to it than that because I'm terrified of rides, <laughs> like even the carousel. I'm kind of terrified of that. But Splash Mountain Syndrome is when you're feeling nervous all day long and so you feel like you're unable to eat. My best tip for this would be to split up all of your meals and snacks, like your normal breakfast, your normal lunch, your normal dinner. Cut them in half 
and make sure that you're taking the other half with you so that you're eating consistently throughout the day, but it doesn't feel like, you know, you're totally overwhelmed by the amount of food that's in front of you. That'll help you keep stable energy up. And it'll also help to keep you from feeling like, oh my God, I'm so ravenous. I just can't wait to get to the fridge the second you walk in your door when you get home, right? So it'll help you keep that energy up. Your blood sugar is going to stay more stable and you're going to feel a little bit more like you can practice that intentionality beyond just the nervousness or the workday or the work presentation that you may be going in for. All right. So those three things, eating consistently, stay on the lookout for food pushers and approach Splash Mountain Syndrome by splitting up your everyday meals and snacks, what you would normally eat so that you can maintain energy and feel less overwhelmed by the amount of food that may or may not be in front of you. Those are all three perfect tips as a very simple, very broad strokes place to start. Start there. Keep me posted. I have lots more to say about the workday and eating, drinking, staying active, but we can get to that at a later date. So let's leave it there for now. Remember to DM me your questions at Jacqueline London RD on Instagram, and we will dive into all things work-related in the coming weeks. But let me know if you want to hear more about that. Let me know what other topics you're interested in hearing, what questions you have. I'm here for you. DM me at Jacqueline London RD, and let's get into today's episode. Yay, we're here. We're ready. We're ready. Welcome, Adam and Jeremy, to On the Side with Jackie London. You have a lot to tell me about, I feel like. (laughs) I feel like you have a lot. I feel like we have a lot to talk about. we got a lot of ground to cover. First, let's just start by having you both introduce yourselves. Tell us about you. Tell us about where you are right now and why it looks so chic that you're both, (laughs) that you've got your, your signage, your true podcasting signage up in the background. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> uh, I guess we do. Thanks to uh, a very cool group of people who happened to be our first investors. This was our office warming gift from them, which was uh, pretty incredible. I love that. I love that. I wish we could actually turn the camera around because you'll actually see that we're sitting in the center of, of Spare Food HQ. We call it the shed and it's actually a kitchen and a big kitchen table. And that's where we spend most of our time. And if it wasn't for the trains running by, that's where you would be talking to us from. So <laughs> we're actually in our office in Dobbs Ferry and just great to meet you. We're right on the Hudson River, very intentionally Dobbs Ferry because New York and Brooklyn is a quick train ride away, 35 minutes to Grand Central from here. And it's also the entrance to the Hudson Valley and all the goodness and the farms and the people and the food and everything happening there. So a very intentionally chosen as the starting point for all that we're doing at Spare Food. Oh, cool. I also think maybe I should just say that I'm Adam and that's Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it can be confusing. So maybe take a step back to go forward. You're not related. You're not related at all. Not at all. all. Okay. We are brothers and we are are twins separated by six and a half years is the way we describe it. There's a middle brother as well, but yeah, people people get a little confused. That would truly confuse you if he was sitting here as well. What what is his name? His name is Richard, and uh, Richard. Yeah, he he yeah he's in between the two of us. Where is he right now? I I see that Richard. The, to me, this says you're not that interested in reducing food waste globally. I mean, that's what that says to me. <laughs> Should no, we just play it he on? He does things? his part by having a healthy appetite. So. Uh, <laughs> Okay. All right. So before we get into the real 
meat, if you will. I hate to use that expression. I hate to use, use a food pun, but I will. I mean, why not? Give us a little bit about your day-to-day routine. Where do you start? Do you start in the Dobbs Ferry office most days? Where are you? Give us the sort of soup to nuts. You And, and granted, so often I get the answer that there's no such thing as typical day, which I completely understand and I feel very similarly about. But even if it was just yesterday, where are you? What are you doing? Start with breakfast. Yeah, well, actually, I want to take a step back for a moment because the spare food company when we originally started was by coastal. I was in San Francisco. Wow. I was actually in, in Marin County. Adam was here. And it was a, a big decision to actually come to New York to get it started together. A company started by two brothers, formed as a public benefit corporation very intentionally from day one. And so the typical day is actually very intentionally a day here at our office in terms of getting started and being okay. able to, to share what we take for granted as brotherly important to say this wasn't kind of happenstance that we ended up in an office here together. Um, it was actually a couple of years of planning and some major upheaval for the two people I love the most in the world to actually uh, make the move here with me to, to commit to spare food. Wow. So, uh, so for, for whatever reason, and this might, might be my connection, you cut out for a moment there, but let me go back to one thing that you mentioned. So you were by coastal, you made it to New York, you were in Marin County, you said, and now, and you've uprooted the family to come and be on this coast. And now we have the, the birth of the headquarters in Dobbsbury. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was already living here in Westchester County you know, my my personal and professional life is really centered on on this area and Metro New York, but then the Hudson Valley as well, and this this particular location. And it's also just this incredibly inspiring space that we that we work in and that we did a little bit of work too to get it to to the kind of space. As Jeremy said that you know it's built around a kitchen. You that, you had to right the HQ had to be built around a kitchen. Yeah. That feels absolutely right. Probably both of our earliest memories are probably centered either around food or actually being in a kitchen. So yeah. eating in a kitchen and you ask what the, the typical day is, one or both or all of us, you know, here the team, first connections of the day are around the big booze block counter table and the stools where we we sit and we make coffee and we check in with one another as people come through the door. And, and that's really, uh, truly it is the heart of, of, of where our day starts. We I make coffee that. and then we sit, actually. Right, yeah. I mean, let's we, we have priorities straight, is Absolutely. what you're trying to say. And so you're both so you're from South Africa. Yep. Yes, yes. Amazing. So you were born in what part? Uh we grew up in Durban, Durban, South Africa. I was a teenager when we moved here, and Jeremy had just graduated from, from college from his undergrad. Wow. So I started high school on in this country, and Jeremy had already done some of his his uh higher ed in South Africa. How cool is that? I mean, and cool. And by cool, I mean also very stressful and sort of scary and, yeah, and um, an adjustment. That, at that time, you know, it was kind of the heart of, of the apartheid years, another you know, series of those. And, you know, I was conscripted and that wasn't going to happen as a, you know, somebody who had been pretty active progressively and liberally in, on campus. Yeah. And the family uprooted, and I followed them almost a year later, wow. literally to finish my, my undergrad there. And three days after my final exam, 
uh, got on a plane to New York. So it's been a journey. Yeah. Oh my God. Unbelievable. That's amazing. I wonder if you might take us back to sort of the early days and certainly before <laughs> the actual political upheaval of the moment, the early days of growing up, what was a family meal like at home? What were what were common staples? What was a weeknight dinner? Any Any one of those stick out to you? The most common staple was all five family members sitting around the table together. Every you single know, night. Every single That's night. That's amazing. That, yeah, every single every night. night. Every night. And, you know, uh, seven nights a week and maybe at least one of the nights, either one set or both sets of grandparents involved in a meal at some point as well. So, yeah, the fact that we're brothers and run a company together around food, it, it, that's that's the heart and soul of it right there. And, you know, our parents had their own businesses, they worked long retail hours, but that wow. dinner was, was you know, that absolutely. was, yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, I think oh. for both of us with families now, it's, yeah. it has continued. It is just that one, one thing that is kind of a non-negotiable. How much time would you say you spend together during during the course of the day? I asked that question because I also, I have two sisters. I am, I am the youngest, so I guess that would make me Adam. Yes, Maybe. yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> In this, it is hard to imagine when you you know that. I mean, I'm sure you feel like, especially with in light of the the pandemic and spending a lot of time at home, where I'm just like you start you start to feel like you can anticipate the behavior of the other people around you. You're like, I know you're about to sneeze now. <laughs> How are you guys feeling? <laughs> You feeling stronger than ever? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, one thing to note is that I went away to school when he was eleven, and right. that's, you know that's a big difference. Yeah. Although, interestingly, we actually shared a bedroom till I went away to school. He couldn't wait for me to go, so he got a bedroom to himself. <laughs> but, but I think it's a really interesting one, and I think it's fundamental to to again the ethos of the spare food company and why I needed to be here for right. us to do this together. And that is the fact that we start at such an incredible baseline of trust, first of all, mm. knowledge, understanding, and respect. And then the rest is just building on that constantly. And you ask, you know, are there things? Yeah, I mean, there's things in, in everything, but but it's really incredible just what compliments we are to one another. And also, I think part of it is honestly, the fact that we are doing something that is so much bigger than either one of us. When we get up every morning, when we come and we talk about the spare food company, when we work on our products, when we talk to people in the world outside, evangelizing around what we're doing, it absolutely is not about each of us as an individual. It's about this purpose, this mission, this strong, deep desire to see a world that's different, better, more wholesome than the one we have today for our teenage kids. Uh, and it, it, it really becomes that that fundamental, that simple. That's beautiful. And I that really speaks to me. I mean, it really speaks to me with what you said also about about starting the day around the table and keeping and keeping the sort of closeness and collaboration and sense of community with your team so that I really feel like when you can build that fundamentally as a foundation inside, what you bring to the outside becomes that much stronger and more powerful. And so I, I think 
you know, hats off to you. That's unbelievable. It's really, really exciting. I think a lot of that comes from that that sort of mindset around business comes from Jeremy actually and and his his professional experiences. But when I think back, and we haven't ever really spoken about this, but when I think back, before we got into the nitty gritty of of what the spare food company was going to do, I remember the first discussions we had was what kind of a company do we want to have? Mm-hmm. Forget about the big issues we were going to try and solve. It was really just right. kind of like building that culture from the get-go. And I, I remember having long discussions about mm-hmm. that, that, you know, it seems like a million years ago, but but that has just kind of laid the fight. It, you know, it makes the other work, it makes the core work of what we're doing that much more meaningful and actually that much more, I, I would say, almost easily attainable because we, we sort of have this, this culture built in from day one that that is just the DNA of of the kind of company that we want to be in on a daily basis and the kind of people we want to be with. So when you started when you started those early days conversations, what was what were some of the things that you tossed around as as what kind of like what were the adjectives, for example, of of the companies that you that you admired or what were, what were the attributes of a team that you were really looking to build? It's a great question to articulate it. I think the the sense of it's a word that doesn't get used in companies a lot, unless you're a certain kind of company, but I think the word hospitality is one that's come up recently quite a bit. And just that sense of, of what does it actually mean to be hospitable and how does that translate you know, in, into the different interactions we, we have with other people. I think this idea of generosity of spirit is also really important here. And the sense that, you know, let's face it, we're not 25 years old. We're midlife, mid-career, starting a company. We've learned an incredible amount, good, bad, seldom indifferent from others over the years and the experiences that we've had. And it, it was a, it, it's quite a gift actually to be this intent, to be able to be this intentional about something, you know, do we slip up? You betcha. Of course, we're human. And, you know, there's a, you know, trying things out and what's working and what doesn't. But I think what we've come to each of us is kind of our own sensibilities and expressions of that sense of hospitality and community. And there's this inclusive nature of things for us to, to actually make it real. I'll give you a perfect example. Adam, obviously being in the restaurant for so many years, family meal, staff meal, family meal was a really important thing and, and you know, good time for everybody to get together. He's instituted Friday family meals here at the Spare Food Company, where it's not just about our family internally here as a team, but inviting people from the outside. We had an incredible food activist incredible chef, incredible human being here last week speaking about food justice and the work that she's doing with people who, you know, young people who were formerly incarcerated and changing, helping to evolve food habits. And, you know, these are the the people we're bringing in, the community we're building around this kitchen table to really expand what we're doing beyond our day to day and to just bring to light. I mean, we have a nutritionist dietitian next up. We've got a recipe, uh, a cookbook author, the one after that, you know, we've got a ceramicist coming in after that. It's just a bunch of different people 
related, but not always necessarily to the work that we're doing, but to just help expand the conversation and the community of uh, of the spare food company. Oh, I, first of all, I, I as you're talking, I'm like, do I? When is it awkward? When yeah, is it inappropriate to check the times? I'm uh, like, well, <laughs> what time does the train leave from Grand? I'll just be over in. Listen, I, I'm going to follow. The, this was a subtle way of actually getting your buy-in so that we can get you here for lunch one day. I'm <laughs> in. I'm all in. Right? That's fantastic. I love 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 everything that you just said but i really i the spirit of instituting the family meal in a setting that is not the family meal am i that's the right that's the right expression yeah, I'm yeah, saying. yeah the family meal call, right friday family meals right i love that of, of bringing that into your space in a way that's not intrusive but is collaborative and sort of building i i like to me it sounds very much like building momentum and building just the general sense of purpose around the work that you're doing and helping others on your team to really cultivate that feeling without feeling like i mean we can all relate to that feeling of oh, i gotta go to this corporate training or whatever <laughs> <laughs> those those sort of years past where you're, you know, I'm sorry, I've got an offsite for the next two days and I'll be out of pocket and you have up, you know, it's and and everyone kind of dreads it, but enjoys parts of it just more subtle than it is in your face, heavy handed. You must do this. It just really speaks to the spirit of what you're trying to achieve and how you're trying to achieve it, which is in a way that's really collaborative and and truly community building so yeah but also just let's be real think about it we've got a secret weapon called adam k chef adam k you know people would spend 300 dollars <laughs> for, for a meal that he cooked and here you have a friday lunch with him standing here cooking while he's chatting with you this so, was yeah. going to be my next question <laughs> so before i want to get into your i want to i want to hear from both of you about about your backgrounds but before we get into that let's just talk about let's just get specific here what was last what was on the menu last Friday from Chef Adam K. Well, I kept it simple. I, I made pasta. So, but but I made pasta actually using a sample of a product that we've been working on. So it was, it was a little marketing plug. That wasn't a little, little R&D. Exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was consumer testing. Nobody, nobody realized that they were guinea pigs. Right. You'll find out from us, you know, we, we have our beverage, but but ultimately the Spare Food Company is a is a product innovation platform and, and the beverage and way, as we'll talk about, is, is one, you know, is, is our first product. There are going to be many other products on the Spare Food platform over time. We've been very interested and been doing a lot of work around farm surplus and specifically here in the Northeast, but you know, you can, it's replicated all over the country, unfortunately. And I've developed a, it's essentially a vegan meal starter using about six different crops, which we noticed from having done some research and commissioning research, actually, there's immense amounts of surplus of, of these particular crops that just never leave the farm for a whole host of reasons. Wow. So uh, with a lot of R&D over the past sort of 18 months, I developed this this meal starter that can be used in, you know, in, in just an infinite number of, of ways. And the easiest way is actually just to, you know, toss pasta with it and add some, a few other little odds and ends. And so I, I've been making these over time and have samples that we've been sending out to people in our chef community. So I used that and I, and I made a little flatbread to go with that. Uh, yeah, it was a very- Whipped up a flatbread. Pardon? Just whipped up a quick 
just a quick flatbread. Just yeah, to- no, it was with uh, yeah, it, it, it was. It was it was a lot it was of fun. roasting garlic all morning in the whole building. That like we're in a oh. building with a hundred different spaces, and the whole everyone was walking down the hallways like, who's making garlic bread? Who's making garlic <laughs> bread? <laughs> it was just roasting whole heads of garlic uh, for his flatbread. <laughs> You, it's like people coming out of different offices, like just, like yeah, it's yeah, like the, the, the calling, yeah, yeah. right? No, There's <laughs> a hair salon next to us, and all all the colors kept coming. Like, it's like is lunch next door today? Is it ready yet? <laughs> right. <laughs> You're like doubling all the whole recipe yeah, becomes yeah. suddenly for yeah. four. That's amazing. I love it. Wow. Okay. So so to get to get us there, let's yeah. start with the topic of food waste in general what first piqued your interest in in tackling food waste and and what to do essentially about it where did this where did this begin for me it really starts so i I, i'm a professional chef i've been cooking for 25 26 27 years now lost count (laughs) over the years but but the bulk of that time was working at Blue Hill Restaurant, uh, Blue Hill, New York City, and then was part of the team that opened up Blue Hill at Stone Barns uh, in Westchester County on the Rockefeller Estate. And I was in a very privileged position to be a chef working on a working farm. And, you know, there's a lot of farm-to-table restaurants out there. This was a whole new level of, of kind of access to the, to the production of our food where you know, cooks are out on a weekly basis doing farm chores. Farmers and livestock managers were sitting in on our menu meetings on a daily basis. So just, you know, not cooking in a vacuum, really cooking very intimately with the production of our food. Through that, you really start to get a sense of, of you know, where your ingredients come from. An example we use all the time is something like broccoli. You know, you start seeing fields of broccoli and you realize that you actually can't see what you think of as broccoli. All you can see is just these right. massive leaves that are actually, you know, concealing what everyone thinks of as broccoli, which is only about 33% of that, that broccoli plant. So again, just by going out in the field and seeing all this broccoli grow, growing and then just kind of scratching your head and saying, well, it kind of looks like collard green or kale. Maybe we could try cooking with those broccoli leaves. And so we asked the farmers to bring it in. And next thing, the farmers are bringing us in broccoli and broccoli leaves. Actually, they bring us in the entire plant and we're figuring out what to do with the whole plant. So this idea of, of starting to understand that there was more to our food system that we were getting access to. And I think just working on a farm and working on a farm and then also just bringing this kind of like natural DNA of cuisine to, to, to bear this idea that, you know, as long as people have cooked, you never threw anything away, right? And you figured out how to make the most of all your resources because most often those resources were, were quite limited. So throwing anything out was just not an option, right? And so that's really just kind of baked into what, what cuisine and, and gastronomy is, is about the world over. So you kind of put, put those two things together and you just start thinking about your ingredients very differently. And it was through that that actually we created in 2015 a, a pop-up restaurant concept that was called Wasted. And uh, it was a, about a three-week pop-up in New York City in 2015 with a menu that was entirely inspired by and created from product that we would usually not get access to, whether it was broccoli leaves or fish bones or juice pulp or all sorts of things. And we created a menu that was sort of a, you know, just kind of like tapped into something. People were lining up down the street to get reservations. 
We did it again in 2017 in 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 uh, London. This waste would pop up, and again it was this this incredible exercise of sort of peeling back the layers of our supply chain. And at all points in the continuum, from from farming to processing and distribution and retail and the whole way through, is finding these incredible ingredient streams that were not being utilized for a whole host of different reasons. And and that really, personally, was was just this defining moment of my culinary career, where you know and that's when Jeremy and I started speaking about this this you know realizing that there's a an incredible amount of of product that we are not using and B that there's this really incredible business opportunity around that and business is a force for good. Yes. Yes. I I mean, I'm so, first of all, I'm so inspired by that. And I have a, I have a vague memory of us. I was at Good Housekeeping at the time and I have a very vivid memory of us talking about, I am sure that I had colleagues going and I had meant to go and I, there was some sort of, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what it was, or perhaps it was that I, I stood in line and, and simply just didn't, I just wasn't timely about it. (laughs) I just stood in line and then said, oh no, I've got to get to a meeting, whatever it was. But it's so interesting to me that there's this really interesting consumer perception uh, in my experience, and and this is in my experience in in editorial in a totally different setting. But what I really recall from that specific period of time, so I was at Good Housekeeping from 2014 through 2019, and what was unique about when we would talk about food waste and how we would write about it or cover it or have events around the topic of food waste at the time is that there's, when you say the words, there's a consumer perception I have felt that is this concept of not wasting a prepared meal. And so to hear this, the the idea for the concept from, from your experience at Blue Hill and from your, your culinary experience at large, and then understand, you know, really getting to pun intended, I hate to say this, but the root of everything is that is really being able to maximize the versatility of nature's gift, gifts, many gifts to us, yeah. right? Like, and to be able to use that in a variety of different ways so that you have meals for prepared staples, things that can stay in your fridge, freezer, or pantry for a prolonged period, whatever they may be. I think there's something so powerful to that because not I don't know that there's enough exposure to that part of the concept of food waste in general. Yeah, I think it's a, a really critical point that you, you raise, Jackie, and that is that, uh, let's face it, who wants to eat waste? Okay, we, we don't. Right, and right. So at the spare food company, we don't actually talk about food waste. We talk about wasted food. And Adam came mm. up with this very early on, just that flip of the two words, food waste versus wasted food. The emphasis is on food, not waste, when you speak about wasted food. Who wants to eat waste? Brilliant. I love that. Who wants to be accused of wasting good food? Right. Uh, when the emphasis is on food and not waste. Right. And it is honestly with that very subtle and fundamental shift that we do what we do at the spare food company because we do not see it as waste. We do not even talk about it as scraps. We don't talk about it most of the time, even as a byproduct, especially when we start thinking about and talking about our beverage, spare tonic, which is made from whey, which is the co-product of the Greek-style yogurt manufacturing industry because it's produced alongside 
that yogurt, and for us, it has equal and perhaps even greater economic value, nutritional value, social value, environmental value, if you're looking at it as an ingredient stream, as a food source that we have been wasting to date and that we can capture and actually utilize as a fundamental food within our food system. And and just to add to that also, I, I think you're right that I think people have a very and and there's a whole bunch of reasons for this, but but people have an idea. Well, they think they know what what this issue of wasted food is about. Exactly, it's you know leftovers on your plate. It's stuff that's going bad in your fridge. Maybe it's ugly fruits and vegetables, which has kind right. of gotten a lot of attention because it's kind of an easy thing to to sort of latch onto, and it's, right. it's kind of like you know something you can just sort of understand, but what you picked up on is kind of looking at it's really what, what we're doing here is, is a far more systemic view of this of yeah. this issue and you know I, I spent the bulk of my time certainly at blue hill working to develop their their meat curing and charcuterie program and it's it's a sort of a passion of mine and sausage making and everything else and you know this idea of nose to tail eating right and even like root to leaf eating right and people have applied it to vegetables um, it's really taking that concept and and applying it to not just the a product but to a farm to an entire system to the entire to the entire as i say to the entire continuum of food production it's this nose to tail approach so that the way that is produced in conjunction with with yogurt is equally as important and as valuable as the yogurt itself it's not like you know the yogurt is the pork tenderloin and the uh you know the <laughs> the way is like the fatty pork shoulder that nobody really wants to eat right that's the same that's the same idea and you, you start to think of the entire food system like that you can kind of start to see where the spare food company is really going and where we're coming from my, it, you just a little bit blew my mind for a moment because now I am thinking about the entire food system. <laughs> I feel a bit overwhelmed yeah. by that. No, yeah. it's really, it's really, really incredible. I mean, okay, wow. So I want to go back to this. I want to go back to this, but just to put a pin in it, since you mentioned the way as the co-product, which I think is fantastic and such a great, meaningful point, because it's true. And I have thought about this so much, which is where does it go? Where is it going? Where has it been traditionally going? And how are you using whey in your in your current beverage product? And where did the idea for the beverage product come from? I will keep it to those three questions. <laughs> I'll just start with the first part of the question and let Adam pick up from there. Where's it been going to date? In the United States, and we have to speak here because yeah. this is where we work, a very small portion goes into more recently uh, methane digesters as an energy source, although it's very expensive to do that. Sadly, the majority of this liquid gold is ending up down the drain at massive, you know, if not pre-treated to neutralize it because it's slightly acidic and it's alive because of the probiotic cultures in the yogurt. If it's not neutralized before it is sent into the waterways, it can create these algae blooms, fish die off. It acidifies groundwater where crop yields are actually impacted. A lot of research on this. Um, by you know yields that are at least 25% lower than without this in the water. Some is used as fertilizer, but you can't put too much again because it seeps into the groundwater. 
So we've been sitting on this, these oceans of liquid gold here, and especially in New York State, and this is an important point as to the why um, way and why spare tonic first, 70% roughly of the Greek style yogurt that is produced and consumed in the United States is made in New York State. We've got an incredible dairy. We've got a whole lot of other reasons for this, which is you know probably the stuff of another podcast, but I'd probably call that one true crime that we can start to think about, <laughs> that we can start to think about and talk about. But the majority of this, probably 90% or more, is actually literally just going down the drain. Wow. I'll take wow. one step back from that, which was you say traditionally, when it's actually traditionally in, in yogurt producing cultures, Middle East being a great example, right. it actually isn't. People, people would consume this. As Jeremy said, there, there's historically has not been much of a market for it. In terms of, of how we got to weigh as an ingredient and, and then to develop spare tonic, it is an ingredient that I had been working with as a chef. We had, whether it was, you know, making our own fresh cheeses in the restaurant and then generating whey from that and finding uses for that way to actually meeting a small yogurt manufacturer who, who we started purchasing whey from and using it in all sorts of desserts and cocktails and all sorts of things. So really starting to, to understand the the culinary versatility of this as an ingredient it, it is you know that that's where i kind of started to to familiarize myself with the potential of this as an ingredient i then started to learn all the stuff that jeremy was talking about just in terms of the quantities and what was happening to it etc in terms of, of spare tonic specifically when we focused our attention on product development it was an ingredient stream that we just kept on coming back to. And, and, you know, for all the reasons that Jeremy said, especially being a New York state company, because it is such a New York state story. Also because, you know, I mean, shameless plug, yeah, I was drinking this, but, but, you know, spare Please. tonic, we didn't, we didn't wake up one morning and say, you know, we want to create a, a sparkling probiotic tonic maybe right. or whatever. This is sparkling probiotic tonic. Always with the spare food company, we we are ingredient driven. Okay. And it was identifying this ingredient stream and then innovating around it. So so there were many things that kind of you know sort of fell by the wayside in the R and D process before we got to to spare tonic. And ultimately, we realized that actually doing as little as we could to the way itself, just because it is so nutritious, just because it's so delicious, just because it. It actually doesn't need too much other than some, some kind of uh, tricky finessing, if you will, and, and formulation. We could create this incredibly delicious, nutritious, timely, actually, uh, very timely beverage that really checked off all the boxes from, from you know, health and wellness to, to immunity building with this incredible sustainability and, and climate-friendly story, only four ingredients. I mean, super clean label. It's like, you know, and, and the fact that every can, depending on the flavor, has anywhere from about 81, 82% of whey up to about 92 and 93% whey. So you truly are drinking this. It's not like we're putting a little bit of whey in a carbonated, you know, seltzer or something right, like that, right? right? So, so yeah, it, it really... It was this identifying the ingredient stream and then really kind of kicking into to high gear around innovation that ultimately led to, 
to spare tonic. So the other ingredients in in spare tonic, are they also locally sourced in New York or are they from elsewhere? So not all the ingredients are locally sourced from New York. So the four ingredients essentially are, you know, with a little variation, but mm. there's always four ingredients. It's always the way, which is, again, locally sourced way. There's usually a primary fruit flavoring and then either a secondary fruit or a, or a spice. So peach, turmeric, cucumber, lime, blueberry, ginger, lemon, ginger. The fruit sources for now are not uh, are not locally sourced, and this is uh, Jeremy can talk to uh, our feelings about incrementalism, which is a big part of what we talk about here. And then honey is the is the fourth ingredient, which is honey is there as a catalyst for fermentation, and it's also there to balance the sweetness and acidity uh, balance yeah. of, of you know, because as Jeremy said, whey itself is is quite tart, is quite acidic. And honey was very intentionally, especially it is local New York State honey from apiaries up in up in the Figgy Lakes. Honey as a as a sweetener was very intentionally chosen. You know, as far as we're concerned, honey is one of the best sugars that is out there, just in terms of what you're getting in terms of antioxidants and minerals. And you're the nutritionist, yeah, not me, but the the <laughs> glycemic index of of honey and how your body metabolizes the sugars, for example. Not to mention, it just adds this wonderful, slightly nuanced mm. complexity to, to the to the flavor, and it is a sustainable and local sweetening source. So uh, that was a no-brainer for us to use honey. There's obviously there was not going to be any refined sugar in there. Maple syrup was a little too strong of a you know of a flavor. Mm. It just worked perfectly. And, so you know, and there's the pollinator thing. Of you course, know, the rest <laughs> right. Of our That's where my relying, yeah is relying on on these bees. And so, you know, for us to go after real honey and using that rather than so much of what's being called honey, which is actually created in a factory, is very important to us, is supporting the, the local beekeepers. Oh, can we, so, so you touched on this about, about incrementalism. I want you to say more about that. And I also want you to speak to the experience and, and maybe this comes from the experience that you had Adam at as you know with your very rich culinary history but there's also it seems like it, it seems and this could be this could be wrong but it seems like there is a real dedication to traceability and the quality of the ingredients more so than then and this is sort of what I was hinting at then the necessarily always sticking to local which I think is something that people get stuck on sometimes that I wish we wouldn't like I I think the there's so much more to be said about you know where is where is x coming from and why why is it more meaningful that it comes from here versus like you mentioned Jeremy about the stuff that we consider to be honey that is not that is not necessarily <laughs> supporting our pollinators and and our local beekeepers who are who are keeping us running essentially. I, I wonder if you could speak to some of just to all of that. Certainly, let's talk talk about it. I'll weave it together, and then I'll, again let Adam speak to the culinary side of it. Uh, so this this idea, this philosophy of of leadership that we have around being proudly incrementalist is is really critical uh, to the spare food company. And it's it's very simple. <laughs> Some might even say it's a cop-out, but we actually believe that it's a strategy. And, and that is that what we're doing here has never been done before. Not at this level, not at the scale, not with the vision and the goal we have to actually 
make our food system more regenerative, resilient, and effective in feeding more people healthy food. So to start with, because it's never been done before, we don't have the answers. We are absolutely humble enough to say we don't know, but we can try. We're smart enough, we think differently enough that we can try new things and see what might work. And as we go around, along doing so, we test, we learn, we evolve, we try new things, we go towards where things are working, we perhaps set aside things that might not seem as effective right now. You know, what, what you, one knows about me when you know me a while is that I'm not an absolutist in any respect. I, I don't like, you know, strong words that are either black or white. I love this idea of the power of and. And, and what that actually precipitates in terms of new thinking. So, so that's a starting point for us. Then I think you see something like localism, which is very uh, noble in its intention, right. but you know, the 21st century in 2022, let's be real, we're not going to successfully, especially with climate change, with changing growing patterns, with just the way the world works, that's not going to work for us. I'm sorry, it just I, I, we can argue this for days and days. I don't see how, let me put it that way. What we do see though, is a regional approach to creating a resilient food system that is absolutely where the future of food lies. And what that means to us is thinking more holistically about the food system and building not the redundancies, but again, I'll use this word resilience into the food system that allows us to not be dependent. You know, if, if we needed any evidence of this, just think about the ongoing supply chain issues for the last 21 of 24 months, where, you know, how can we rely on trucking milk from New York farms to be processed and pasteurized in Idaho and California, only to then say, why don't we have milk on the shelf in the middle of a pandemic one being rationed to two gallons of milk, when in the next you know, news piece that comes on, online, I'm seeing that they've dumped 4.5 million tons or gallons of, of milk 45 minutes from where the farms are. You know, there's just something here that we have to think differently about. And you know, it's hard for a big food company to, to say some of these things and do some of these things. It's we, we have this luxury as a startup to, to think about what can we do? What can we try? How can we provide the evidence-based opportunities for others to say, actually, there is a there there. And yeah. so we're going to try to figure out what that looks like for us. So that's the incrementalism, localism, regionalism side of things at the heart of it. And then it does, it plays exactly into what you're saying with Adam as a chef and this I'll call it reverence for real food. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, <clears throat> I've sort of been in the, you know, the crucible of the, of the local food movement for quite some time. And, and especially working in this region in the Hudson Valley, which is such a, an agriculturally rich area. You know, first and foremost is, yes, we have to take, I, well, first and foremost, I think what distinguishes the spare food company and certainly spare tonic is that that it is chef crafted. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a chef, but it is actually something that is quite unique in the world of food products uh, and CPG products. So, you know, if it's not going to taste good, 
it doesn't matter how great the story is and how many, you know, how much carbon we sequestering from the atmosphere or whatever else, if it's not going to taste good, uh, I'll just right. say, why bother? So we, we have to lead with flavor. We have to lead with deliciousness and then the rest will follow. Not only will the rest follow, but I think we'll have a far better chance of actually achieving what we're setting out to do because people recognize deliciousness and they will go in that direction. They will, they will follow that. Right. So look, you know, what I love to say that all the ingredients that, that are in spare tonic are coming from within, I don't know, a hundred miles of where we're sitting today. Yes, I guess, I guess so. I, I, I'll, I'll bigger, the larger issue that we're trying to solve for right now is, is how can we be using more of what we already grow and produce. We talk about using, everyone talks about using, you know, do, doing more with less. We actually, we talk about doing more with more. We actually want to use we, we, more ways to use more of what we already have. Right. Right. It's not more of like, let's plant more, but actually more of what, what's already with the resources that we already have that we aren't fully uh, utilizing. So Ultimately, the way and sequestering way and reducing the amount of way that isn't being eaten is, is a driving principle here for us. But then the, the progeny and the and the quality of the ingredients is, is right up there as well. And, and this is to Jeremy's incrementalist philosophy. This is something that we're going to work towards. And we're very open about it. We're not, you know, doesn't say 100% local or anything on this this label. And we, you know, we're very transparent about it. And, and we're also very cognizant of where there's work to be done. But as Jeremy said, you know, the idea, for example, of taking what is considered a waste stream by a multi-billion dollar industry and actually not sending it directly to a wastewater treatment plant, but actually figure out a way to bring it back into the food system that, that's a pretty massive undertaking right there. And that is an entire new paradigm. That, that, is, that is bucking a system that is pretty well entrenched and has a lot of money invested in it. Ah. And we're doing that a little way. So, you know, to Jeremy's point, this is not easy. And we're kind of like, you know, we're, we're blazing this path as we go along here. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, we can tell you that we saved 80 tons of whey last year from going down the drain. We plan on saving 200 tons this year, we plan on half a million tons the year after. And, you know, it starts to, while there's a billion pounds of, of way in New York State annually, what would make us so happy is if other companies started saying, well, I could use the way for this and I could use the way for that. And the yogurt manufacturers say, well, actually, we're selling our way. Here's what it is, the price per gallon. Uh, and here's how you come and collect it or, or we deliver it to you. And they actually see it as a new revenue opportunity rather right. than an expense line. You know, it, it's funny that you it's funny that you say that, because what I'm really interested in that specifically and particularly because I think something that gets tossed around a lot at, at big companies and at big companies of all types is this phrase corporate social responsibility, right? Like, oh, you know, we're, we have our team of that's responsible for corporate social responsibility, whatever it is. And actually, the, a lot of that can start with the core product itself that you're trying to produce or create or make or the service that you're offering or providing. And I think this is the perfect example of it, right? Like it, it has always surprised me that for consumer products, especially in food or at least in food, which is would be, you know, our collective wheelhouse here, it 
there's so much that could be done with something that is not the core product that even if it's not a B2C opportunity, perhaps it's a B2B opportunity and it always seems to be overlooked. And I I love that. I love the idea of saying, we're going to start doing this and we're actually going to do something about it on our own. And perhaps others will take notice or, or also be intrigued by the idea. Yeah. I, I mean, just in the case of way, and we've been saying this for a while now is like, you know, we, we will know we've succeeded when yogurt manufacturers no longer look at themselves as yogurt manufacturers, but look at themselves as yogurt and whey manufacturers. Right. And they're actually producing two products right. and they're selling two products and, you know, what it's, they're separate, but equal, right. That they might have different end uses. And yes, you're right. It might be B2B. It might yeah. be, B to C, it could be B to B to C, whatever. But but the fact is, is that you know we, we sort of joke around with the the idea that that the primary uh, yogurt manufacturer that we work with, we're probably their their biggest client, and we don't buy a single container of yogurt from them. I mean, that's right. that's that's putting it into practice right there. Right, incredible. I mean. Do you feel like, do you, so I I mean, because I really, it really does speak to me and it's so clear from everything that, that you've shared so far and, and what you're clearly, what you've clearly set out to do, that there is absolutely no blueprint. <laughs> there's, there's certainly no, there's no one who has, we're definitely on the precipice of something here. There's no one that's done this before. There are people who who have spoken publicly about it, but it seems like we're kind of lacking for for larger food product manufacturers to to sort of get in on this. And I think part of the genius behind both of you is that you're you're building it from where it starts it's the nose to tail of business almost like it, it's that you're you're starting by considering it from the beginning rather than saying oh no we have this enormous supply and distribution like we have this whole supply chain going and now we would have to go back why would we you know like there there's there's an understanding i mean it, you can understand where that comes from but it doesn't it's not happening for you guys cuz you're starting from a different place you're starting from from building it is there anyone are there are there companies where you you feel like Oh, that's really interesting. I wonder if we should try X. Are there is there anyone? And it doesn't have to be in food. Are are there any um, are there any companies that have inspired you in the process of of the regenerative or resilience, the resiliency building approach to to food? Well, it's Patagonia is the first one that yeah comes to mind, and it's no you know surprise that I spent formative years in my career at Patagonia as part of the team helping to affect this kind of change in that organization wow. where it has, has really been a their North Star. They're in the business of saving our planet and they make no bones about it. And that comes from, from Yvonne Chouinard directly and you know, 25, 26 years old being exposed to that and, and mm-hmm. learning that business could actually be a, a, a true force for good in the world. Is, is fantastic. Now, obviously, it's very different. It's still a privately held company. It's mm-hmm. phenomenal in everything that they do and, and, and has been such 
an incredible talk about blueprint. It's a blueprint for me. I mean, you know, the house looks different that we're building. We're painting the walls different colors, but the the ethos and that North Star, having that North Star is something that I learned there. And I think there are very few companies out in the world today that match anywhere close to, to how brilliant and, and how brilliantly they've done it successively over time through multiple CEOs and generations of people working there. Literally, you know, to see the stand that they've taken in the last 48 hours about where the outdoor trade show is happening because of the politics in that state is this is this there's integrity in every decision that gets made in an environment like that and and that hasn't changed that hasn't changed and that that is really really important i think in terms of, of where we're coming at it from what is fascinating for us is that what 2017 the first version came out of the the epa's uh, food waste reduction hierarchy pyramid and you know, it's basically your, your food pyramid turned on its on its point and the largest area at the very, very top where you can make the most impact is in preventing food waste from happening, source reduction, they call it. And that's actually preventing food waste from happening in the first place. And that for us is this whole ingredient optimization, this idea of thinking systemically about things. What's so interesting is that speaking to people on the inside, in the upside, what's now being called the upcycled food world, or just generally in the food world in general, the majority of the work that's been done to date and the majority of the funding that's been allocated to this work to date by the investors and, and big food more generally is in recovery and redistribution of food that otherwise would get wasted and you know that's the next level down, then feeding animals, then compost, and then ultimately, worst of all, being landfill. But it's really fascinating for us as part of this movement, as part of the conversation. You know, Adam was on the stage for the first time at uh, one of these conferences in 2017. There hasn't been the voice of the chef, of the culinary innovator. It's been this very kind of clinical technical. And don't get me wrong, phenomenally important work. The people that are being fed are people who, who need access to food. However, to see all of these companies being built upon a fallacy, quite honestly, yeah. that you know we have to keep producing more and more waste for them to actually grow bigger and bigger over time. Hang on a second, what's wrong with this picture? We have to start at the top of the reduction hierarchy and say, how can we prevent this from happening in the first place? Not that I want to put these folks out of business, right. but if we're going to actually really make an impact, and this is a very, very, very important work, uh, point here, and that is that preventing food waste is the number one way. We cannot just stem the tide of global climate change. We can actually begin to reverse the impacts of climate change in terms of sequestering more carbon and feeding more people and ultimately being better uh, citizens and humans why wouldn't that be the place to start? Yes, it's hard. That's a good reason. You know, a lot of sleepless nights, I promise you. But when one really starts to understand it and think about it, it's incumbent upon us to think differently and to act differently and to recognize that the impact we ultimately are able to make is so much greater if we focus on preventing this waste from ever happening before it starts. Wow. Wait, so, so before... Before I ask you my many questions that just came, that just exploded my brain, do you have a hard stop at three o'clock or can I keep you here for another five minutes? 
Yeah, keep us for another five to ten minutes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a great okay. conversation. It's a really right, good yeah. I mean, because what I'm dying to ask you is if is if you would continue to share a little bit more about that, about the preventing, about why preventing food waste can ultimately have such a such a powerful impact on on the reversal, or at least begin the process of the reversal of of climate change. Yeah, I think you just go back in the system again, and it's a word you, you have obviously, obviously used a lot here. But think about, let, let, it's always easy, let's take it out of the abstract and make it real. Mm. Let's take it back to spare tonic and whey, right? Yeah. The dairy industry is so much maligned. It's filthy. It, you know, big factory farms are massive pollutants. The GMO that goes into the feed for the cattle and what that's meant to Amazon deforestation. There's just so many people who, who have so much to say about that. And yet, as Adam said, we have a multi-billion dollar strained yogurt industry where it's okay for all of us who love our Greek style yogurt to buy a tub of yogurt and not even realize or recognize that it took four cups, three to four cups of milk to make that one eight ounce cup of yogurt or six ounce cup of yogurt that you're eating, right? So you've got all of these inputs into dairy farming, the, the economic inputs, the environmental inputs, the labor inputs, the pollutants in communities when you drive down, you know, uh, the I-5 corridor in, in central California and you just smell this horrible smell that is dairy farm country there. And, and yet we're fine throwing away 75% of that milk without even thinking about it when we buy our tub of yogurt. Nobody right. knows. You can't blame people. Right. Nobody knows the stuff, but let's put it in the positive again. The optimist in us always says, well, if they do know, and they do have an opportunity to spend that $1.50 or $3 differently and choose to buy, you know, when you buy your, your tub of yogurt, go over to that refrigerator instead of just buying a kombucha or another nitro brew coffee or anything else, buy spare tonic or any other of the beverages that I'm certain will be made with whey. That is the whole use of your product. If you're going to buy one and the other, buy one and both, really, because that's how you're, you're telling the story. And that's this idea of prevention. Yeah. When you get to our next product, it's the same thing. You know, why is it that we've created a system where it's cheaper for farmers, even with all of those inputs, the water, the energy, the labor costs and everything else to leave 55, roughly 55% of most crops in the field unharvested each season? Right. Why? How's that possible? How have we allowed that to happen? Yes, we're living in cities. We don't, you know, recognize, we don't know our farmer neighbors any longer. We, mm. We've outsourced the farm chores and, and farm work to, to seasonal workers. What if we started saying, you know what, we have what we need. We don't need to go plant gardens on Mars or we don't need to figure out what the next dairy looks like coming out of a Petri dish. Really what we or need to do is just optimize what we have because the reality right. is that we are wasting as much as we actually need to feed all those people who are food insecure in the world. We're wasting as much as we need to reverse the effects of climate change. We, you know, we just don't need all of this, you know, the, the tech savior mentality with what we have. We can be pretty analog and pretty real and, and do better with what we already have. I appreciate that 
so much and I appreciate those those points so much and I just feel like I I cannot say enough great things about having the opportunity to speak with you with both of you today. I mean, this has this is an incredible conversation and so important and I would love to keep you for another few hours, but I understand that as entrepreneurs <laughs> You perhaps may you may have a you may have some time constraints. So, in the interest of that, what here's where I would love to to leave us for today is that you mentioned that incredibly poignant point about if you're going to buy the yogurt, you know, once you once the once we reach this consumer level for our listeners. What else besides buying the yogurt? And if you're also going to buy the yogurt, perhaps you're going to also choose the spare tonic so that you can make sure that you've maximized the the your dairy spending that is gonna that is gonna happen for today. Um, what are what are let's say let's call it an extra one or two from from each of you about what what can a consumer start doing right now to um, to cut back on wasted food. Um, people ask us that all the time. And, yeah, it's, it's um, so, and I know it's so you know, tricky. From a consumer level, I mean, I think there's a few things. Number one is I think we need to be cooking more. Yes. Actually cooking, cooking, not, yeah. not reheating and not, you know, uh, but cooking more and developing some, some cooking skills. I think just uh, people always say like, what's your best, you know, recipe to, to, you know, to minimize waste in your kitchen. I always say to people, I said, there's like three, there's like three go-to recipes that get under your belt. Uh, you know, one's a frittata, one's fried rice, and one's panzanella. And between those three, <laughs> you can kind of solve most of the, uh, you know, the, the issues in your home fridge. I also think, you know, buying more intentionally. It, you know, really think about it. I mean, like there's really nothing like, I mean, I think I've thrown blueberries into fried rice before, right? Just to get sounds like a delicious. little- Delicious, yes. Some people put pineapple into fried rice, right? right. Blueberries into fried rice. But between those three, those three recipes, you can actually check off a lot of ingredients that might be going okay. south in your fridge uh, or in your pantry. Uh, and I also just think menu planning, again, is something yeah. that for, for home cooks, I think is- it's difficult. It's not always that easy, especially, I mean, I just know my own home where I work, my wife works, we've got, you know, a teenage kid and a, and a preteen and life is busy. Right. And so to be able to kind of plot out and, and plan is, is, can be challenging, but that allows one to shop so much more intentionally. Yeah. I, I think as well. And I also think something really interesting and I, I haven't spoken to you too much about this, although it, it, it is, um, it is infused into everything we do is learn about, cuisines from around the world because there's so much inspiration to be yes. taken from from these traditional dishes that are have kind of made their way into our you know into our world and in the media and in restaurants and supermarkets but but learn about other cultures because there's so much to be learned from these great cuisines of the world that rely so heavily on this concept of not wasting anything and I think we could take so much inspiration from that. I love that. That was beautiful. Where, so where, and where can we find the, it's spare tonic or is it spare food tonic? Spare it's tonic. Spare tonic. Okay. Um, right now we, we started out in and around New York. And so, you know, in your favorite New York eateries like Italy and Murray's cheese and in Westchester County, the Chico's markets. But then towards the end of last year, we, 
got some incredible support from a few people who who really are are spreading the word incredibly fresh direct and the folks there in terms of of your your grocery delivery uh, they have just been fantastic in supporting a new brand like us and telling helping us tell our story and introduce it to more people and then imperfect foods if you don't know about imperfect foods you know they do a lot of the the overlooked ugly undersized mm-hmm. oversized that box is kind of our family's greatest joy on a weekly basis kind of the surprise of what's going to be in that box but then you can also choose the other things that you love and put them on repeat and mm-hmm. spare tonic is is something there as well so through them we've we are now available in 21 states uh, pretty much okay. through the midwest that is about to change fast uh, because we are now starting to scale so we've got some new partners on the manufacturing side there's a lot of people who have been knocking on our door saying we'd really like to sell this, but we haven't been able to make enough because we've still been proving what's possible here. But that all is intended to shift in the next two to three months. So, uh, uh, yeah, keep an eye out and um, also tell us if there's places that you would love to see uh, Spare Tonic because uh, we'll be at the big uh, natural products trade show in Anaheim in a couple of weeks' time and uh, the buyers are all there and it's nice to be able to say to them, we know that your community wants this. Yes. Yes. Anyone listening and going mm-hmm. to Expo West, find you. Find <laughs> that, us. that was for seriously. I, I really, I cannot thank you enough. Keep on doing the good work. This was incredible. Adam and Jeremy, thank you for being here and thank you for spending some time with me. I mean, and giving me so much time today. I really can't thank you enough. I'm so excited about all of this, this work that you're doing and continuing to do. And and I really want to continue this conversation. So I hope let's, let's it's do it not our last. Yes, I'm in, I'm in. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at JacquelineLondonRD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.